one of the things I do when we get the box of papers is I kind of like smell the box and papers and it kind <laughs> of, uh, it's weird, but you know, when I, when I smell it, it's not as, it gives you that, like, reminds of my grandpa's basement or something, you know? <laughs> I love that. I love that the, the answer is like sniff the papers. Hey everybody, I'm your host Stephen Pulverin and this is Hodinky Radio. This week we're here to talk all things vintage watches. Uh, vintage can be exciting, but it can also be pretty scary. Uh, if you dig deep enough on Google, there's information out there to support basically any opinion you could possibly have about vintage watches. So I thought I'd call in reinforcements here and get the facts straight from the experts. Those experts are Seori Omura and Brandon Frazen, uh, both of the Hodinkee shop, and between them, they've got well over 20 years of experience looking at and evaluating the finest vintage watches in the world. When I need help looking at something, these are the folks I call, so I thought they'd bring them in to chat directly with you. Um, They're going to help me answer questions like, do you really need box and papers when you're shopping for a vintage watch? And how small is too small for a vintage watch? Should you be buying 31 millimeter watches? Do you need to be looking for oversized? There are a lot of myths out there, and they're going to help me dispel some of them and give you information that can arm you to make the best purchasing decisions when you're looking for a vintage watch. And that way, it can be a fun experience instead of an intimidating one. So whether you're brand new or whether you're a seasoned collector, I think you're going to learn something here. I know that I did. So without further ado, let's do this. This week's episode is presented by Bulova and the Joseph Bulova Collection. Stay tuned later in the show to learn about this new line of Swiss-made automatic watches or visit Bulova.com for more. Hey, Siori. Hey, Brandon. Good to have you on the show. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Hey, Stephen. Thanks for having us. Of course. You guys are uh, coming to us live from Hodinkee HQ in New York, right? That's correct. Yep. Well, I appreciate you guys taking the time to chat with me. I mean, this this comes out of mostly my own, like, neuroses and obsessions. Um, and I think in vintage watches, there's so much of this, like, received wisdom out there, stuff that everybody says is true and is fact and is just, like, how you have to do it. Uh, and I don't I don't know that that's true. And maybe it is, maybe it's not. But I, I thought uh, the two of you could definitely enlighten me a little bit. Is that, does that sound good? Sounds great. Yeah, sounds fun. Perfect. So what we're going to do here is I've basically put together like six misconceptions that I think people have about vintage watches. These ideas that are just like out there that people say whether they understand them or not. Um, And I'm going to kind of ask you to debunk them for me, maybe give set the record straight. Some of them might not be true at all. Some of them might be partially true. The first one is that box and papers are critical, that they're super important. And then if you're buying a serious watch, you kind of like have to buy one with box and papers. What do, you, what do you guys think about that? You know, box and papers are important and they're great when when you have them and can find a watch with them. But at the end of the day, I think condition and originality, you know, is more important. You could have like a really bad watch with box and papers or you could have a really great watch naked as, you know, 
they say, uh, no box and papers. And I would prefer one without box and papers in, you know, good original condition. Um, you know, from my past experience uh, working at, the, uh, at Christie's Auction House and stuff, a lot of people back in the day when they bought these watches, you know, they would throw the box and papers away. Yeah. Uh, like the first thing they did. So it's really hard to find it, find box and papers. So, you know, I think being open-minded to just getting a good watch is, is, is a good mindset for, for finding a vintage watch. What about you, Sauri? Like at Antiquor, I'm sure you heard a lot of people throwing, throwing the watches, uh, boxes away too. Oh, sure. I mean, you know, it's kind of rare. I mean, even, you know, even kind of today as well. I mean, I guess people are a little bit more aware today, but like back then, you know, box and papers were not really so considered as part of the collector's item. So, you know, a lot of people just put them away or oftentimes they moved, you know, from, you know, different places. So they kind of, you know, lost them along the way. So it's not that uncommon to just see a watch by itself. So, yeah, I think, that should not discourage anyone from buying that watch. If the watch is in great condition, um, there's certainly value to that. Okay, so so ultimately the idea is like box and papers are great. And if all things being equal, like it's probably worth the extra money to get them if you can. But like it's better to buy a good watch than to buy an okay watch with box and papers. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. Um, yeah. And, you know, we get a lot of, you know, we do get watches that we sell here with box and papers. And we're always excited when we find that because it is rare. But it's funny, you know, a lot of times one of the things I do when we get the box and papers is I kind of like smell the box and papers. And it kind <laughs> of uh, it's weird. But, you know, when I when I smell it, it's kind of it gives you that like kind of like reminds of my grandpa's basement or something, you know, yeah. it's like and that's kind of a good sign to me when the papers are like sometimes too fresh it makes me wonder but you know these things have been stored for so many years and in like musky basements and stuff so yeah you, you gotta smell the papers and boxes it <laughs> yeah, does have that like um, old library book smell i'm sure everyone's yeah, familiar exactly. you know that kind of kind of old paper a little bit sweet um you know that type of smell <laughs> uh, you, you get that with the uh, old paper so yeah that's yeah, I love that. I love that the the answer is like sniff the papers, right? Like you got you got to verify. Yes. <laughs> uh, I've never thought about this. Like in all the years of of looking at vintage watches, but you're you're totally right. Like if you get a box and papers and they look and smell and feel like truly truly brand new, like who was putting Rolex box and papers in like a hermetically sealed box in 1964? Nobody, right? Like that that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean it's. I think it's it's possible for sure. I've seen some really pristine stuff, you know, knowing the provenance and everything. So it's not always, you know, sometimes it's okay, but it's always that that attic smell always gives me a little bit of reassurance. <laughs> that's that's great. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'll speak from personal personal experience here. Uh, to your point about you know a good watch uh, versus a good watch with box and papers. Uh, I, I used to own a, a vintage GMT that anybody who's been following me on Instagram or whatever has definitely seen pictures of. And that watch was a full set, inner box, outer box, oh, nice. hang tags, brochures, the whole thing. And I love the watch. I mean, the watch itself was incredible, but I ended up selling it to buy a watch that came with nothing. That was just the watch. <laughs> uh, and at the time I was like, oh, is this stupid from a collecting standpoint? And some people told me it was. Some people said like, you just don't give up on a, on a full set like that. And Ultimately, I made the choice that I wanted the watch to wear on a daily basis that I wanted to wear as opposed to like having the box and papers in my, you know, 
in not in an attic, but in a, in the top of a closet. Um, and ultimately, I'm super happy with the decision. So, like, I think you know, it's it's good to hear that the advice you're giving people is what I did. So I don't feel like an idiot on my own podcast, uh, which I always love. <laughs> no. <laughs> and and people do need to occasionally look out for for bad boxes and papers, right? Like these these things can be fun, but they can also be a way for you know a dishonest seller to kind of like bump that price up uh, on an otherwise like only okay watch. Yeah, that's 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 with everything, you know. It's you got to just uh, know the seller, you know. Try to know the provenance if you can, um, you know. Kind of. Uh, yeah, there are fake papers out there. People, you know, that's a known thing. So you just got to really trust kind of like where you're getting it from. And that's kind of like when we find stuff with box and, pa- box and papers, you know, we're always kind of vetting it extra, making sure we know, you know, where it comes from. And uh, just if anything looks funny, we just kind of pass on it usually. Yeah. But- yeah and also, um, because there's so much uh, premium added on box and paper these days, there's more incentive for people to, you know, put something together. Yeah. Um, so yeah. since that's also something to keep in mind. And, you know, between Brandon and myself, you know, we've looked at so many boxes and papers in, you know, the course of, some, you know, a long, I actually, a long time. So, um, <laughs> you know, we can actually kind of figure out, okay, this looks a little bit off or this looks right. Totally. So that's also a part of, you know, what we um, do here at, uh, you know, the vintage team here, just to make sure the bosses and papers are original to the watch. Nice. So that's also an important part of the process here. Nice. Yeah. Well, yeah. all right, let's, let's move to number two here. Uh, number two is that unpolished cases are the best and that's always what you want. You just don't want to buy a polished watch. Uh, <laughs> is that true? Um, I mean, you know, if you can find an unpolished watch, that's great. But, you know, I, I think kind of similar to the box and papers thing, you know, I don't think you need to go into finding something, you know, needs to be unpolished. It's, again, these watches are all, you know, 30, 50 years old and polishing a watch was so routine and it still is like, you know, you send a watch in, like polishing it is part of the process of kind of maintenance. So until recent years, people got, you know, people started understanding that, not polishing it was better leaving it original but for vintage watches you know most of them you know so many of them have been polished it's hard to say you know unpolished versus uh polished which which is actually better in the sense of like it's not a clear-cut case um it's it's really a matter of degree of um you know polishing you know if it's done really well with integrity left to the watch then that actually could benefit the watch itself instead of having a completely unpolished watch that's not in great condition anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's really um, something to kind of keep in mind. Um, it's really a matter of degree. It's not like clear cut case here. Yeah. Yeah. No pun intended there. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, that's, that's really good advice. And I think, you know, the fact that it's, it's hard to tell, I think can sometimes make people say like, Oh, well, then I only want unpolished. Cause if I can't tell how polished it is, but, I don't know. For me, I found little like tips and tricks from from you guys and from others that are helpful. Things like, you know, looking at where the, the holes are if it's pierced lugs, mm-hmm. right? Like you can kind of tell if the hole is in the right spot. And if it's not, metal's been removed, right? Uh, looking for the bevels on vintage Rolex uh, sport models. Right. Like those little tips and tricks can can help people, you know, 
Obviously, they're not going to have the same level of experience that the two of you have looking at, you know, thousands and thousands of watches a year. But like little things like that can help people feel a little more comfortable, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it does take a long time to kind of like look at something and see, you know, kind of have an idea of what was done. But a good way to do that is also kind of if you know a watch has never been touched and never been like you know, kind of, you know, the provenance, you know, this person's the original owner and it's never been touched. It's good to look at those watches and then look at others and kind of just compare them. This week's episode is presented by Bulova. There are only a handful of historic brands whose pasts powerfully connect American and Swiss watchmaking, and Bulova is one of the greatest. Founded in New York in 1875, Bulova would go on to set up the first fully integrated watch factory in Switzerland, shaping the industry for generations to come. And luckily, Bulova has a new collection of watches to celebrate this distinctive heritage. The Joseph Bulova collection is an homage to the brand's visionary founder and how far the company has come in 145 years of continuous operation. The flagship pieces in the Joseph Bulova collection are a pair of chronographs that combine classic elements of Bulova design with contemporary manufacturing techniques. The chronos are each 42 millimeters and made of stainless steel with either a rose gold on black dial or a blue on silver dial. The three register design and slim Arabic numerals are inspired by those found on Bulova's very first chronograph from 1941. But the movement is a modern Salida SW500, which adds a day-date complication at 3 o'clock. These are watches that nod to the past without looking like they arrived here in a time machine. Each model is limited to just 350 pieces, and they're priced at $2,495. Both watches are available now from Bulova authorized retailers. To learn more about the Joseph Bulova collection, be sure to visit Bulova.com. All right, let's get back to the show. All right, so so the next one I want to talk about is, is kind of a touchy subject sometimes, and that's that vintage watches are expensive. And sure, obviously they can be. Everything can be expensive. Uh, but like, I know when I first got into watches, like there were lots of cool vintage watches that you could buy for quote unquote, not a lot of money. And granted, not a lot of money is still hundreds or a few thousand dollars. Like we're not talking 10 bucks here, but like, does does a good vintage watch today have to be expensive? Vintage watches and watches in general could literally go from, you know, hundreds of dollars to millions of dollars. So there's yeah. such a wide range. Um you know, and a lot of really cool watches are at the lower end of that range. You know, personally, I've, I think I mentioned this maybe last time we chatted, but, uh, you know, I've gotten myself a little collection of like Seiko's that, you know, all of them cost like less than a couple hundred bucks each, but they're just really cool. And they give me a lot of like satisfaction and pleasure when I'm playing with them, wearing them. There's a lot of other really kind of under the radar models and brands out there kind of like, um, you know, Seiko, vintage Seikos are great, uh, Bulova, Caravels, um, and then, you know, another favorite is the Omega Seamaster. There are so many of them that are really well-priced, you know, granted, again, you know, under a couple thousand is still, you know, it's still a lot of money, but in the grand scheme of vintage watches, it's a pretty good entry level, entry point. Um, I mean, Sauri, you've got a vintage Seiko. I mean, not Seiko. Um, well, you do have that, but a vintage Omega that's pretty nice that you got for a pretty good deal. And that thing yeah. looks really good. I mean, I would have thought it was way more expensive. Well, um, I was pretty lucky back then. This is many years ago, actually. But um, and you classic, guys might have classic seen... vintage watch story. Many... Yes, classic. Yeah. Vintage I got a great deal, but it was many years ago. 
go. Um, maybe this may not happen today anymore, but um, I was very lucky. Um, I had an opportunity to buy this, uh, a large square, I guess you could call it a chocolatone shape mm. uh, Omega from the 50s with the bumper movement. And um, it was uh, actually a few hundred dollars um, <laughs> at the time. But even at the time, I was pretty lucky then um, for a few hundred dollars. But um, yeah, I wear, you know, quite often. And, uh, you know, uh, I have it on a, a Hodinki Sedona green strap, <laughs> which brings out the patina. I had to pitch it there. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> and um, yeah, and it's, you know, it's, it's a watch that... Um, I started actually started wearing again and um, you know, it's really not about the price per se. Of course, you know, you can possibly buy a great example for, you know, if you pay a lot more, yes, I understand that part as well, but you know, I think it's almost for vintage, you know, keep your mind creative in the sense, like if you see something that that looks great, you know, go for it. You know, that's really the fun part of vintage because at the time, you know, all these designs were so quirky and not very sort of standardized like how we see today. So you might see, you know, a model, um, and you see this with UG quite a lot, um, but, you know, it could be more or less the same reference, but they have different configuration, dial configurations, case shapes, you know, so, you know, have fun with it, you know, and also with like UG and as Brandon was mentioning about Seiko's, they're still within the reasonable price range. I mean, considering, you know, how vintage, you know, prices are going up. And also at the shop, you know, what we're trying to do is also bring in pocket watches. That's really like an undervalued uh, category that not a lot of people are focusing because, you know, not many of us will carry pocket watches anymore, mm -hmm. but as an object, as an horological sort of object in looking at the history of, of how, you know, um, watchmaking happened. It's really a great source of also reference to see the, these designs because you can actually see how the wristwatch designs, um, you can see from the pocket watch designs, like they were carried over to the wristwatches. Oh, and yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are beautiful watches, uh, pocket watches still out there under the radar pieces. So that's something that we kind of started bringing back um, or bringing into the um, Hodinki shop for the vintage um, selection. Because, uh, you know, Ren and I come across these beautiful pieces and uh, we want to, you know, let the people know that uh, they're still under valley category there. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a thing we haven't even touched on here, right? Is like there are still good deals to be had that might not be such good deals in two years, five years, 10 years, you know, like if you if you get into something today, who knows, you know, I, I remember in the early days of Hodinkee, you know, UG tricompaxes were 1500 bucks, 1800 bucks. <laughs> I wish I'd bought 20 of them back then, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, be doing better than my mutual funds, right? Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, who knows what the next the next thing like that is. So if you find something you like, and it's accessibly priced, like, you can enjoy it, and you also might get a payday. Who who knows? Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, cool. Well, uh, another one that's like near and dear to my my heart here is the idea that like men should only wear watches over X size, and depending on who you talk to, it depends on what that size is. Some people say thirty eight. Some people say thirty six. Some people say twenty eight. You know, like it really yeah. it really depends who you talk to. But one of the things we know about vintage watches is like. Watches have been getting bigger over the years. So the further back yep. in time you go, the smaller they tend to get. Like, should people be limiting themselves to what they can wear? Or should people be a little more open-minded and maybe discover some hidden gems? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, people get sort of like... Um... 
Um, they focus on the case size, the actual measurement of the case size. And, um, you know, don't turn the watch down just because it's, it measures exactly, you know, on a caliper X millimeters, because the actual size um, and the design could actually factor in, you know, when you have it on the wrist, because the, the, the style of the bezel, the case shape, how the lugs are downturned or, you know, um, elongated, it really makes a difference in terms of how the watch appears on your wrist. So, you know, actual case diameter might be 35 millimeters. But, you know, depending on the bezel, especially like a wide set bezel may make the watch look a little bigger on your wrist. Uh, you know, logs that are elongated makes, you know, the watch look bigger on your wrist. So, you know, if you like the design, uh, try it on and see how it fits on your wrist. I think that's the most important thing about uh, especially vintage watches, because people could say, oh, it's 34 millimeters. It's just too small. You know, um, like, for example, um, Rolex date. You know, some of them really look, you know, beautiful on anyone's wrist. So, yeah, just don't, you know, don't turn down a watch just because of the case measurement. One of my favorite watches is my Tudor Rager. That's 34 millimeter. I got it, I guess, like three years ago from our, our good friend, Eric Wind. And when he sent it to me, he was like, I was like, you know, I like it. But the size, I don't know if I'm going to wear it. He's like, trust me, just wear it for a couple of days. And I thank him for, you know, kind of pushing me to try it because I don't know if I would have. And now it really opened my eyes to a lot of other watches of that size. But, you know, it's just like what Sarah was saying, like the lugs, the way the watch looks on your wrist, it may sound small, but fits just fine. And the other thing about these sizes, they fit under a cuff really nicely. You know, sometimes I wear a sweatshirt or something with like a tight cuff. So I can't really, I don't want to wear something too big and it's like, kind of like constricts my wrist, you know? So that's always, for me, is something to think about. Um, and, you know, we do get a fair amount of under 36 millimeter watches in the shop and I'm always trying them all on. And I'm so surprised at some of them that I really love how they fit. And it's something I would never really think I would yeah. like, you know, they, they could also be a really great way to get a deal, right? Like the number of that's times, <laughs> the number of yeah, times I've good. seen a watch listed online and I'm like, why is the price so low on this? And then you get to the measurements and you're like, oh, because it's 33 millimeters, not 35 millimeters. Or, oh, it's 34, not 36. But right. like like you said, you get used to it. It can be a great look. It can be a lot of fun. And like, you know, you, you can find really incredible uh, pieces from brands like Vacheron, from brands like AP, from brands like Omega, Rolex, Paddock. Uh, from the mid-century and before that are incredible watches. And if they were 37 millimeters, they'd be 100 grand. And because <laughs> they're 33 millimeters, they're 10 grand, you know? Uh, yeah, that's a good point. There are There is some good value there, especially with the paddocks. But the only thing is, it's like, since I have the Ranger I was just talking about, it's like my wife is trying to steal from me all the time. So <laughs> it's kind of the, the tough yeah. part, but no, that's good though. <laughs> totally. Awesome. Well, let's let's keep rolling here uh one of the things and and funnily i think it connects to size in in a weird way um one of the misconceptions i think is is that you can't wear a vintage watch every day that if you buy a really nice vintage watch it has to spend most of its time in a safe and you occasionally get to take it out and enjoy it <laughs> but that these things are like delicate and should be kind of treated like you know little gems like they should go in a little box and be looked at and whatever um I don't know. For me, that doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun, but uh, I, want, I wonder what you guys are thinking. 
you know, vintage watches should definitely be, uh, you know, you need to be careful with them, just like any watch, I would say, really. Like, make sure your crown is always, like, pushed in, make sure the case backs are always secured. Just kind of, like, being conscious uh, can allow you to wear these things more than you would think. At the end of the day, you know, these things were made to be worn, even if they're 50, 60 years old. Um, with proper care, they can kind of run forever. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as Brandon just mentioned, you know, with reasonable sort of consciousness and common sense, um, you know, these these watches were made to be worn, you know, practically every day. And, you know, even at the time, I mean, at the time, it still rained outside, you know, everything's pretty much the same, more or less. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, if, if you are a little bit more conscious, I, I would say just make sure the crown is in, as Brandon was saying, because moisture is definitely enemy, um, number one, I would say, for vintage watches. So as long as the crown is properly in, the case back is closed, um, you know, I, I think just um, enjoy wearing the watch and, and not think about too much. Don't, don't feel it's super, super precious about it. You know, it's also the, the part of collecting is also enjoying wearing your watch. So yeah. definitely don't be too, too uh, careful about it. You want to be careful a little bit compared to a modern counterpart, but it's something that, um, you know, you shouldn't have to think about your, what's on your wrist all the time. Um, so, you know, um, with proper care, with proper maintenance, it's made to last. And, and, you know, we handle watches from like, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, and they run perfectly fine. And, you know, Brendan and I wear, wear these watches every day and uh, they still keep time and they, you know, function perfectly well. So enjoy your watches um, with a little bit of care and a little bit of maintenance and uh, you'll have for another 50, 60 years. Love that. Love that. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a firm believer, like, if you're, if you're going to buy it, enjoy it, you know, and and for some people that might mean putting something in a safe. For me, that's, yeah. that's not the case. Like, if it's not on my wrist, if I'm not, you know, wearing it out to dinner with my wife or to go hang out with friends or whatever, like, at that point, it's it's kind of a waste to me. But or the other option is buy one and keep one. And uh, <laughs> or not buy one and keep one, but wear one and keep one. One, one to rock, one to stock, Sayori. Exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> Love it. That's that's solid advice right there. Um, we we all know somebody actually who has done that. Uh, I won't call him <laughs> out by name on the show, but uh, I know somebody who had a good Royal Oak and a ba- and a wearable Royal Oak. Uh, that uh, the the good one was too good to wear, uh, so he ended up buying <laughs> another one uh, in order to uh, to enjoy it. Uh, we'll let yeah, that person remain yeah. anonymous for now. Uh, all right, let's let's for the last one. I'm going to ask you a question that you might you honestly might just tell me to go take a hike here. Uh, so that's why I saved it for the end. Um, people, when we talk about vintage watches, it's kind of there's like an understanding that when you say vintage watch, you mean vintage mechanical watch. Uh, but we are now at a time where there are quartz watches that are vintage. Uh, and there are other types of watches, you know, Accutron and, and tuning fork movements and other things. Uh, does a vintage watch always have to be mechanical? Good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, that was my that was my initial thought when I first kind of like got more into watches. And I thought, you know, automatic or manual, that's all I would want. But after having more experience with some vintage quartz watches, I'm kind of I'm more open to the idea of it, especially, you know, recently we did 80s week with a couple cool like. We had that PVD Hoyer, which mm. was pretty funky. But the, that was quartz, you know. We had the Seiko Golden Tuna, which I really liked, and that was quartz too. Yeah. So, you know, I'm open to more quartz vintage watches. Um, the one nice thing about quartz is, like, you don't really have to set them that much. Um, salary can, you know, I have, like, 
getting blisters on my fingers from setting these watches. Yeah, that's you know, so. we both do. It's like being a guitar player. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not, <laughs> but yeah, that's like one thing, which is kind of nice. You know, you can kind of set them and just adjust them for the date once in a while, um, or daylight savings and everything. But um, there's a lot of cool quartz ones out there. Uh, you know, like we also had another a nice beta 21, which is obviously pretty yeah. cool quartz too. Yeah, I mean, I've always I've always really liked the two the two vintage quartz watches that have always caught my eye that kind of like made me want to ask this question are um, those old oyster quartz uh, date justs with the really funky oh, yeah. kind of like heavy bracelets. Um, yeah. They just feel like the most like late 70s, early 80s watch you could possibly own uh, in solid gold, obviously. Um, <laughs> uh, and then the weird paddock beta 21s. Um, are just so strange and like I love that era where like the watch industry was kind of like trying to figure out what the hell it was going to do uh in the future uh and you get all these weird experiments and I, I just think I think it's a really interesting period in watch history and even if you're like a really diehard mechanical watch nerd like this this is a thing you should at least know about even if you don't want to collect it for yourself for sure I mean, they also made, as you know, to Stephen's point, they certainly made a lot of interesting designs that they probably wouldn't have made otherwise. Yeah. And you can see this with Oyster Quartz, for for example, um, and definitely with Beta 21. Um, if you look at the Beta 21 design, that is very not Patek Philippe at all in terms mm. of stylistically speaking. It's a heavy case. It's bold. It's some some of them have the Swiss cheese bracelet. Yeah. It's not very much in in sort of their classic uh, aesthetics, but they went there and I think the 70s was really a, a time period, you know, all these Swiss watchmakers were like, okay, we got to do something different. Uh, we have to stand out. And that really shows in their sort of a, a product, um, you know, um, from that time. So, and also these uh, pieces, especially the Oyster Quartz, the prices are going up. Yeah. Um, there was a time uh, back in the day, as we would say, you could buy them for a fairly uh, reasonable price, but certainly uh, the prices are going up. And uh, even their quartz, uh, especially for the oyster quartz, uh, date just version, day date version, um, you know, they're becoming desirable. Uh, so, yeah, something to keep in mind. Yeah, I do like the oyster quartz. Those are cool. Are, uh, are we calling it as the next big thing, uh, 80s quartz Rolex? Um. I mean, maybe, you know, it's hard to say. Maybe, for for maybe people not, who but... can't see the looks on the two of your faces when I said that were absolutely priceless. Uh, that that was worth it all on its own. Um, but no, those are, they're like the Royal Oak of uh, Rolex to me. You know, they have yeah. that like integrated bracelet look. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for taking the time to do this. Um, you know, despite having been around watches every single day for the last, you know, 10 years or so. Uh, I always find I still have stuff to learn. And I think that's a good, you know, lesson for, for everyone listening. Like part of the fun of this is that there's always more to learn. There's always different perspectives. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty lucky that I have the two of you on speed dial any, anytime I need. So it's nice to be able to bring that to our audience and we'll have to have you back to, to talk more vintage soon. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That was fun. Awesome. Thanks guys. Talk to you soon. <laughs>